Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Good morning to all of you all. Good to see you on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I think we got the New England fans on the on my right because there's not that many of them. And then all the Eagles fans are right here in front of me because you know that I'm really not for either team, but I'd rather see the Eagles win than to see the Patriots win again. Amen to that. All right. So I've got that out. I feel better. All right. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew 6. Actually, we're going to be all over our Bible this morning, but we're going to start in Matthew 6. We are continuing in our series in the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew 6, we're going to read verses 9 through 13 together. We're both reading, but more importantly, we're praying the the words of the Lord's Prayer together as we start. So um, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. If you do not have a Bible, there's one underneath the center column of seats. You're welcome to grab that. Turn to the middle of your Bible, or you can look at the table of contents and You should find the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Of course, the words are on the screen. Read these with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then finish with this. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. One of the most known stories in all the Bible is the story of Joseph. Joseph is the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Not just the son, he's the 11th uh, son of 13 kids, one of those being a, a female. He's the favorite son because he had, uh, Jacob has Joseph in his latter age. He's born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rebecca, as opposed to Leah. And he has a very interesting story. Genesis 37 opens up with um, the story of, of, Je- of Joseph. And it tells us that Joseph has a gift. He's a dreamer. And of all things, he dreams two different dreams that has him being exalted above his family. There's, uh, they're out binding stalks probably of wheat, and uh, 11 of these stalks bow down to him, and then he sees the sun, the moon, and the stars all aligned, and they're paying homage to him. And of course, if you have any siblings, brothers or sisters, definitely if you're the youngest of those siblings, then, I mean, what brother or sister would go for a little pesky brother thinking that he is, uh, you know, better than, than the older ones. That was the lot for, for Joseph. And so I'm not sure how much time uh, passed by, but these brothers connived to get rid of their younger brother. I mean, they were just going get, to get rid of him, as in, like, kill him. 
And so Jacob sends his sons to do a shepherding task a little bit far away from where they were living. And then he sends Joseph out to check on them. And the brothers had already decided uh, collectively that they were going to, um, to, to kill their brother Joseph. Uh, one of the brothers steps in, the oldest Reuben says, ah, that's probably not a good idea. So they end up putting him in a ditch and then selling him over to the Egyptians. In Egypt, because Joseph is favorite of God, I mean, he's just he has got blessing on him. He ends up working for uh, Potiphar, who is the, the 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 captain of the army of the, the guard, basically the you know the guy running Pharaoh's army. And true to true to who Joseph is, everything that he touches, managing Potiphar's house. Um, it just turns to gold, not literally gold, but it's just blessed. And Potiphar recognizes that until the point where Joseph is accused of seducing Potiphar's wife. He didn't do it, but Potiphar's wife accused him of it because the Bible says that Joseph is this very good looking, just handsome young man. And she wanted him. So she went after him and it got Joseph put in prison. Fast forward a little bit of time. Joseph's gift makes room for him. And so he ends up dreaming a dream that gets him out of prison. He's in prison for a while. And lo and behold, his gift puts him at the right hand of Pharaoh himself. He tells a dream. He is able to interpret a dream that Pharaoh has of many years, seven years of famine that all of Egypt and therefore all of the world would uh, would, would have to go through. And Joseph basically interprets the dream and says, we got to be prepared for these seven years of, of blessing that will come before seven years of famine. And Pharaoh sees fit to put Joseph in charge of getting Egypt and the known world through all of that. And uh, in, in one of the ensuing days, Joseph's brothers who don't live in Egypt come to Egypt to try and get provisions so that they and themselves and their family won't die. And guess what happens? They end up coming to Joseph, not recognizing him because he's dressed in Egyptian garb and they bow down to him. The dream comes true. Now, it's, it's a great story. You should read it. It's in Genesis 37 to 50. It's an important story because uh, Genesis, the, the, the book of beginning, spends 13 chapters telling the story of Joseph's life. And if you know the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Bible only spends 10 chapters talking about Jacob, the patriarch of all, of all patriarchs. But here's the key point. The key point of this, of this story is really how it ends. Joseph says something to his brothers that reassures them that in the plight of the nation in this famine, that God is going to take care of them primarily through him. But more importantly, for our purposes today, what Joseph says is related to this theme of God's will being done, which is what we're going to talk about today. Look at what Joseph says in Genesis, Genesis 45, verses 4 through 5. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Skipping to verse seven. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. A couple things in, in what Joseph is saying. Firstly, um, 
Joseph is bringing up just the amazing provision and the power of God to um, to get uh, the people that God was calling to himself through a very difficult time. Okay, I mean, if it weren't for Joseph and um, him rising to the position of second in command of all of Egypt, if it wasn't for his his wisdom that God had given him and just the ability to organize the nation of Egypt so that they could get through the famine, it would have been a plight of not just uh, Joseph's family, but really all of Egypt, perhaps all of the known world. What seemed like here just an internal family matter, I mean, just think of, of a bunch of boys and the dysfunction that every family has, the the rivalry, the the struggle, the drama, obviously the the sin that would cause brothers not to like one of their younger brothers, all of that is coming out. But the larger story is a realization that through Joseph, this unassuming, you know, handsome young man, that God's purposes for the world are going to be realized. And that's what Joseph is saying here. He's like, you know what? You had your intentions, but God's intentions were, were, were surpassing your own. And here's the, the big lesson I think that we get out of Joseph's story as it relates to what we're talking about today. God's intent for the world is not stumped by our plans. And that deserves an amen. Because there's some things that, um, that have, like, like situation and circumstance have, have derailed you. And you might think, oh man, woe is me. I mean, I'm never going to get back on track. There are some things that you yourself have done that have gotten you off track. And you're like, how do I get back to the place where I'm supposed to be? God's will will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. If you're with us for the first time, we are in the fourth week of a seven-week series in the the Lord's Prayer. We have gone through uh, basically the greeting, Father, and looked at your name, your kingdom, and we're uh, Uh, going to talk about uh, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Last week, we looked at the second petition, your kingdom, uh, in verse 10. This week, we'll take the second part of that same verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven uh, of this Lord's Prayer. In the backdrop, I think of this idea uh, you know that we're that we're embarking on today is how can I know God's will for my life? I mean, don't have 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 most of you asked that question at least once since you've been on the planet on planet Earth? I think we ask that question a lot because surely if there's any concept in Christianity about which we are most confused or that we have the most questions, it's this idea about God's will. Uh, so we're going to talk about that today, and we've already prayed it, and so you know it pops up in the Lord's Prayer. So the very first thing that I want to just touch on, I'm, not, I'm just going to whet your appetite here. You may even have more questions after I bring it up, but we, we sort of need to add, ask and answer the question, what is God's will? Um, I, uh, one of my favorite theologians is R.C. Sproul, and he's kind of like an expert at making very complex topics understandable. And R.C. Sproul says there are at least three facets to, um, to God's will. And the first is God's sovereign will. What is God's sovereign will? We've already talked about it a little bit. We, we, you learned a little bit about what God's sovereignty is, his sovereign will being displayed in the lives of people when you just um, read Joseph's narrative, Joseph's story. God's sovereign will describes the will that Whatever he decrees is going to come to pass. Think of the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. God speaks, and whatever he speaks 
comes into being. He speaks and creation happens. The universe appears. God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. And then there was luminaries. And then there was plants and animals. And then, of course, he makes human beings. In the, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus, uh, Jesus and, uh, and his encounter with his best friend Lazarus in John 11 is an example of this as well. Lazarus has died, and Jesus basically goes to his tomb uh, three or so, or so days after Lazarus has already uh, been in the grave, and he speaks to the grave, and what happens? Lazarus gets up, and he comes out of the tomb all wrapped up in his grave clothes. And that's, that's an example of God's sovereign will. R.C. Sproul says that's also God's preceptive will. And God's preceptive will has to do with his, his laws and his commandments that he gives us to sort of corral all of his creation in terms of our moral behavior. So an example of that would be the Ten Commandments. Think of uh, the, the, the Mount, uh, God is at Mount Sinai. Uh, he has uh, the, the, the budding nation of Israel there, and he's giving them the, the moral laws that they are to live with as they are on planet Earth. He tells them, don't have any other gods besides me. Don't worship idols. Uh, obey the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Don't murder. All those things. Here's what's interesting about the preceptive will of God. Perhaps you already caught on. We can disobey it. I mean, we can like downright ignore God, right? In fact, many of us, most of us, we break parts or all of the Ten Commandments uh, every week. We violate those things every day. So, uh, thirdly, uh, not so much God's will, but God's inclination or his disposition as part of his will. And in this sense, God's will has to do with what is pleasing or displeasing to him. All right, y'all got that? Got that down? It's like, yeah, kind of. All right, so I know, I know how you feel. I'm going to give you a scripture verse, and we're going to talk this through to, to give you a, a living example. How would I know what God's will, as, even as I'm reading the Bible, what, you know, which one it is? I'm going to give you a, an example from one of the most um, uh, disputed uh, Bible verses in all the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, uh, should reach repentance. Uh, you see two words there in the middle of this text. It says, not wishing. Uh, the King James Version and the uh, Revised Standard Version, I think the New American Standard Version as well, translate these a little differently than the ESV that you're, that you're reading here. That's actually the Greek word, uh, balamenos, uh, and it means to will. So in, in essence, Peter is saying God is patient toward his creation, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the question for us as we're sort of thinking this through is, I mean, what kind of God's will is that? What kind of God's will is God willing when he says he doesn't will for any to perish, but that all should reach repentance? So let's, let's go through the list. God's sovereign will says that whatever he decrees is going to come to pass. So based upon what you know about the world, about the Bible, um, would this be God's sovereign will? Because if it's God's sovereign will that he wills that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that means that what the, the theology that all of us live under is universalism. 
There's no such thing as hell. And if there's a hell, it's completely empty because God loves us all. And he's going to take us all to heaven. So this is probably not God's sovereign will, right? Because we know that there's verses in the Bible that talk about God giving us two choices, coming to faith in Jesus through his salvation, the rescue of the gospel, or suffering God's wrath. When we take the whole counsel of God, God is not contradicting himself, okay? So this can't mean the sovereign will of God. What about the preceptive will of God, that second option? And the preceptive will of God, basically, it, it, if we read it this way, God wills that no one should perish, but all should, have, should come to repentance. That means it would be a sin for us to perish. That didn't sound quite right, right? All right? So what about the third option? And the third option, it's saying that in a, in a sense, God is inwardly disposed or not delighted when those of his creation don't choose repentance, but instead perish. That sounds like it might be right. Now, obviously, I'm trying to take a complex issue and, and simplify it. And someone once said that, I mean, there's some things that are so complex that just simple words won't satisfy. And I probably haven't satisfied many of you with just the, 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 the words I've said in regards to how to discern which one of these is the right will of God. But this, it, it, looking at this in the, the sense of God's disposition or his inclination will be like a judge, you know, a modern day judge that's sentencing someone that's done something really bad to 70 years or perhaps even the death penalty. And that same judge who's exacting justice also has a, a view that he values human life. And so you have the same thing with God. God is a God of justice and righteousness. God is absolutely pleased when his justice is meted out and when his righteousness is, 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 over, is, is overarching everything. At the same time, there's verses in the Bible that says God is not pleased. He's not delighted um, when, uh, when the wicked perish. And those two uh, diametrically opposed thoughts just are the heart of God for us. Okay, so again, a complex issue. Obviously, the answer is C, right? It's, this is the, the disposition that God doesn't want us to perish, uh, which tells you that this idea of God's will is... Uh, kind of complex. And so I'm going to simplify our discussion today. And we're going to focus really on what does God mean in terms of this prayer? What, it, what does it mean for us to pray for God's will to be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven? And for that, I'm going to turn to uh, uh, the, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. In fact, the, the catechism says in question 103, what do we pray for in this third petition. And here's the answer. In the third petition, which is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the, the Shorter Catechism says, we pray that God by his grace would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. There's three words that stick out to me. I've got them uh, highlighted and uh, italicized, know, obey, and submit. And so we're going to sort of unpack this idea of what it means for us to pray your will be done in the sense of, of those three words. Firstly, to pray your will be done means that we pray to know God's will. We're praying to God that we would be able to discern what his will is 
for our lives. If we're going to pray, not just your will be done, but your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what Jesus is telling us is you need to know God's will. We need to understand God's heart so that by doing so, we're allowing ourselves primarily to be transformed by his word. And this should remind you of, uh, of, of verses that Paul says, Romans 12, 2. Paul writes to the, the church at Rome, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think what Paul is saying is, here, here's, here's one of the ways that we can discern what the will of God is, is you take out the, the words that God has already given to us by which he's revealed who he is, and you start reading it. This right here, folks, is the revealed will of God for your lives. It, it's your trusty, perhaps even dusty, scripture. It, it's the Bible, right? This is where God has told us about who he is, and he's told us about who we are and how we should respond to him. The scriptures, by reading them, articulates to us how we can, upon reading them, learn to think God's thoughts after him and actually be uh, changed and transformed in our mind. The, the, the proverb says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Okay? Think in your mind, leaks down to your heart, and that's how life change happens. Someone recently made an interesting observation. They said, we in our Christian world today have a real thing about understanding God's will. That thing, by, by the word thing, he meant we have an obs uh, obsession. We're obsessed with knowing what God wants for us to do at every minute of our, our lives. We want him to tell us exactly, Lord, right, right now, what am I supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to be listening to Jeff or looking down at my smartphone or or telling my child to stop talking, you know, those kind of things. We want to know exactly what God wants us to do as we face specific situations and challenges in our life. And the person goes on to say, uh, um, the person brought out a point that we only find this emphasis in the writers of the 20 and the 21st century. The, 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 Pur the Puritans and those who wrote 500 years before them did not emphasize knowing God's will in, in that sense. When they wrote about God's will, they, were, they weren't looking for indications of, of, of what am I supposed to do today to be in God's will. They weren't looking for indications of, um, of, of what color sock I should wear tomorrow, black or blue, or what should I do this or that career, or even, even harder decisions. I mean, who should I marry? All those, those are, I mean, very important decisions that you make, that we make in life, right? We want to take some time thinking about those. When they wrote about understanding God's will, they wrote about understanding his word. Isn't that interesting? They wrote about understanding the heart of God as he had already revealed to us because the ancient Christians, such as the ones I'm talking about, they, they were interested in so being touched by God's heart through his word that they, they, they knew in, uh, intuitively what God wanted them to do because they had already known how God had 
um, instructed them in the word. So when they were pressed to make decisions, they followed the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and it was easier to know what God wanted them to do because they were intimately familiar with the word. Now, in, in, our, in our day today, I'm talking mostly about the reformers. One of the things that were the, uh, we find, not necessarily a fault, but the reformers didn't focus on a lot of the, the, you know, the internal spirit of God living in us and, and giving us guidance as well. And so in our day today, we would not neglect to say that apart from reading the word, we have the Holy Spirit in us. The spirit of Jesus lives in you, and that spirit is in many ways going to direct you and guide you to do the things of God. And so we would say also, Read the word because that's the revealed will of God, will of God for you. But also pay attention, uh, discern, you know, attempt to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. But here's the one thing, the, the one thing that I want to to harp on a little bit. You know, a lot of times we try to decide what God wants us to do, like in a vacuum, like in isolation. When the Bible tells us there's, you know, that this this Christianity thing, it really is a a, a true team sport. It's not the Super Bowl in, in football. Christianity, being a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is a team sport. We come into Christianity as an individual receiving the grace of God to live for Jesus. But when God brings us to, into the church, he brings us into a family that's already like budding with, with people and gifts and, and all that. And we have the ability as Christians to go and to submit ourselves to the, the common wisdom that God gives us by his grace through the community of faith. But the proverb says that uh, if you're going to go to war, you, I mean, the, 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 the wise thing to do is immerse yourself in those who are, are wise. That's the best strategy for us. And a lot of times we try to discern God's will just um, and just doing our own thing. And so... Pay attention to the word, pay attention to the spirit within you. Uh, we should also bounce off our pending decisions with others. And then here's another thing that I want to encourage you to do. There's nothing like good old fashioned waiting. Waiting. I was challenged this week. One of the books that I am reading as we're going through this series is Lord Teach Us. This is by two, two theologians out of Duke University. And uh, there's just one, actually it's like two pages worth, and I want to read just one paragraph of that uh, because it challenged me in this idea of um, discerning what God wants me to do, knowing God's will by waiting. Listen, listen to these words. When we pray, your will be done, we haven't specified a termination date. The world doesn't have to come out right uh, for us tomorrow. One of the problems we have with waiting for the will of God to be fulfilled is actually waiting. We want what we want, and we want it now. Just as Second Peter says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. Second Peter 3.8. Like, Lord, why did you say that? Like, come on now. Sometimes one of the main functions of our prayer is to give us something useful to do in the meantime. While we are waiting for God's will to appear, we pray. When it comes to the will of God, sometimes the most important thing to pray is for patience. We've just prayed your kingdom come, a petition, to, a petition full of hope. Now we're taught to say your will be done, a petition for patience. The writer actually goes on and even gets better for like two whole pages of him just unpacking this idea of knowing the will of God 
by waiting. Waiting, people. Not just doing what you want to do because you want to do it, but just waiting. And sometimes I think we're supposed to wait. J.R. Packer adds this, uh, this quote um, along the same ideas of waiting. He says, when you are unclear as to God's will, wait if you can. If you have to act, make what you think is the best decision, and God will soon let you know if you're not on the right track. That's good advice. That's, that's wisdom. So, uh, I mean, act only if you have to until you've discerned the actual will of God by reading a word, by discerning your spirit, by uh, bringing what you think you should do to the body of Christ, the community of, of the saints that are around you, and then wait. So when we pray your will be done, we're firstly praying to know God's will. Secondly, we pray for the grace to, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, obey God's will. If this is to be our prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, Lord, then our lives, lives simply need to conform to his commands. Luke 6 is the gospel writer Luke's version of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are these uh, series of sermons that Jesus gives his disciples. I mean, he's just sitting talking and talking and talking and sermonizing and talking to them about what it means to live in the kingdom of God in different circumstances. And he's giving them lessons and he's giving them parables. And he, he, he had comes upon this teaching in Luke 6 towards the end, and he sets up what he wants to teach with this question. How do you, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And then in verse 47, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a, a flood rose, the stream broke across the, uh, against the house and could not shake it because it had, had been built well. It had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And so pretty, pretty simple parable. Jesus is saying, I mean, what's the firmer foundation? You want to build your house on a, a firm foundation or like in a swamp or uh, sand? And obviously the answer is you build it on the most secure foundation. And so here's the point of his parable. It's only when you build your house on the rock and in context, the rock is actually his teaching. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm opening my mouth and words are coming out. I'm talking. And that's the most sure foundation that you can have for your life. Not hearing me talk or watching my lips move, but actually doing what I say. So here's the point of his parable. He's, he's talking about obedience. When am I most secure in life? I'm most secure, not just when I'm on the rock, but when I'm doing what Jesus says because he's the rock. But here's the thing. That's also when I'm doing God's will. When I'm just doing what Jesus says. And if Jesus were here, I think he would just articulate this to us like this. He, uh, just this whole idea, because you know, this idea of kingdom and Jesus being the ruler over our lives, of Jesus reigning over us and also us um, submitting our will to his, it's all tied together. That's why he has them in the same verse. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus would say, why would you even pray your kingdom come and yet resist my rule and my commands over your life? Doesn't make sense. Why would you pray your will be done when really it's your will that you're after, not mine? And then I think he would say, why would you pray on earth as it is in heaven when really it's more about your own earthly existence that you're trying to promote? Hatton Robinson, a great preacher and a teacher of pastors, uh, says something in regards to this in his book on prayer. He says, in this idea of praying God's will be done in our own lives and in the world, we often get this upside down. We pray as if we expect God's God to change the way he is running the universe because we've given him our petitions. Prayer is not getting God to do my will. Prayer is asking for God's will to be done in my life, in my family, in my business, in my relationships, and in the world as it's already done in heaven. So here's what I think Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us that prayer is not about bending God's will to our plans because we do that very well, don't we? We will come up with a mantra. All right, if I just pray these words, if I have a couple of good days of devotion, I'm going to actually get on my knees as well, and I'm going to give my prayers to God. We come up with our list, and we say, Lord, I really need these things. I mean, we might be in a tight spot, and we might really honestly need these things to happen. But here's what we do. We say, Lord, this is the final answer. I need these things to happen, and they, they got to happen by Friday. And then we say, in Jesus' name, amen. But what that's... that's that's us getting, trying to get God to bend his will to, to our commands and demands. And folks, that's not Christianity. That's, that's mysticism. That's, that's wickedness and evil. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's about bending our will to his plans. John 4 is you know, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, uh, not because it talks about God's will, but we, we see Jesus demonstrate this. I mean, we see him live this out in his life, not through the story, but how he responds to the story. And so you've heard of John 4. It's Jesus approaching a wayward woman. And so he's walking, him and his disciples are walking through Samaria. They come to a well. The text says Jesus is tired. And so interestingly, John's gospel is trying to um, portray to us the humanity of Jesus. The disciples are sent off to get some food, and Jesus is right there at the well. A woman approaches him in the, in the noonday to get water, which in this context would not have happened. That's not how you got water in, in the first century. You would have gotten it like early in the morning. That's when all the other women would have come out to get water. She comes out in the noonday because she's wayward, okay? She's had five husbands living with someone at that at that time, and Jesus calls her out on all this, and to introduce the just a conversation with her, he says, "Hey, can you give me some water?" And she wants to know why are you a Jew talking to me? Because I, you know, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. We got this like no-no relationship, and so uh, conversation ensues. He talks to her about living water, about basically about coming to faith, and the woman, I mean, she's like ready to drink. She's like, "Give me some of this water." All right. And so I think uh, the, you know, the moral of the story is the woman actually comes to faith. In fact, she actually goes back to her village, the same village that which she she would have been an outcast in her own village. And she talks to these people who would not have wanted to associate with her and says, come see a man who told me everything about my life. But not only that, I think he might be the Christ, the Messiah. And what do they do? 
they come out and they get to know Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples come back, and here's the point I want to make about this text. Verse 32, Jesus says to, his disciples, uh, to, to all the crowd that's before him, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Pause right there. All right, so the disciples... They, they're oblivious to all this that, that's gone on. And they've come back. They've come back. They went to McDonald's. They came back. They got Jesus a number three, right, with a Diet Coke, and they supersized it. Y'all don't even know what a number. Y'all know what a number three is? Come on now. Come on. I mean, y'all are such a healthy people. All right, McDonald's. Quarter pounder with cheese, small, uh, a medium fry, and a Diet Coke. And you supersize it. It's like, oh, I mean, it's like, mm-mm-mm. That's like my cheat meal food, right? Come on. So the, the disciples are thinking, well, what happened? Did somebody go to Mickey D's and get Jesus a number three? And Jesus corrects him. It's like, come on, disciples. Um, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And here's what Jesus is saying to this group. He says, here's what brings me the deepest satisfaction and nourishment in my life. It's not the food that you went out and labored and got. I mean, you might even had to go fish for the food that you brought back. That's not it. Here's, here's what satisfies me. It's just doing the things that the Father has given me to do. I hear the Father. He talks to me. And I'm going to simply carry out and do all of the things that he has me to do. And I think that's important words for us to get from Jesus. Because more often than not, a lot of times... We pray your kingdom come. We pray your will be done. But on the down low, we don't want to do what God wants us to do. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want his kingdom. We want our kingdom. We don't want his will. We want our will, and we want God to bless it. And then we say, in Jesus' name, amen. And I think the truth is, sometimes we actually know the word. We know what God has commanded us. We have a sensing of what the Holy Spirit is stirring in up, uh, up in us to do. But then we resist it. We're just like, I can't do that right now, Lord. And ultimately, what Jesus is saying is we're going to miss out on the very thing that God has given us to, to provide for us in the moment. And so here's Jesus, and he's saying, Here's the richest food for all of us. It's to know that you're walking in obedience to God, that you're walking in his footsteps. Jesus walks first. And just like a little kid, I'm just going to walk right over the, the path that Jesus has for me. And I think it's that same thing for us in prayer. When we pray, your will be done. We're praying to know God's will. Secondly, we're praying for the grace to obey God's will. And thirdly, we're praying, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, to submit to God's will. And I think this is, for most of us, the hardest one. It's this idea of we get to the point where our hearts are willing to trust God, to, to trust him with the thing that's most close to us, the thing that's most endeared to us, that, that God, I would give over to you what my plan is for me, because I know my plan is what I want, and say, all right, Lord, here you go. I, Here's my plan. You can, you can massage it and make it into your plan for me. Sometimes we can't trust God with that. So in Mark 14, this is the passion of the Christ. This is when Jesus is, um, I mean, it's the end of his life. In Mark 14, uh, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is about to go to the cross, and he faces 
what many think is the deepest anguish of his earthly life. In fact, he is about to pray what many call the most remarkable prayer in all the Bible. Verse 35, he gets on the ground. And actually, the, the, the words say he falls on the ground and he pleads with the Father to take that cup of suffering away from him because he knows the crucifixion is about to happen. Verse 36, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. God, you can do anything. And I know this has been your plan for me, but can, can you not like do something about this too? Can you take this cup from me? And then he resolves in his heart, yet not what I will, but, but what you will. Now, we, can't, we don't know immediately what happens uh, in, in Mark's gospel, but if you would go to the same text in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us some important details. He says, in this, in this very moment, an angel comes and strengthens Jesus. And I can only imagine the angel comes and strengthens Jesus the same way the angel came to him when he was tempted, like in the very beginning of his ministry. He sent out into the desert for 40 days to cause to fast, uh, tempted by Satan. And after he gets through that, the angel comes and basically soothes him, strengthens him for his, to, to begin his ministry. In this case, the angel is coming to strengthen him to end it. And so this angel is probably a messenger of God. And as he's coming to strengthen Jesus, he's firstly coming from heaven with the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer. And here's the answer. Jesus, you've got to drink this cup. And so from here, I mean, Jesus faces the, the deepest suffering that any person on the earth has, has ever faced. We know about the, the physical suffering. He under, uh, he's betrayed by a kiss by someone that he loved, Judas. He undergoes three trials. He's beaten. He's, he's shamed. His clothes are taken from him. A, a, thorn of, a, a crown of thorns is pressed onto his head, so you know his brain is, is impacted. Isaiah would say his body, the figure of his personhood is marred, so it's unrecognizable. And so that's, that's a lot of physical suffering. But here's the thing. There's been people who have been tortured far beyond what Jesus was crucified. So that's not the, the deepest suffering that Jesus experienced in that crucifixion. The deepest suffering he experienced was actually his separation from God and the Spirit. That eternal communion that Jesus had lived with forever, you know, forever and ever. Amen. On the cross, he, he echoed these words, my God, my God, not Father, but God. Yahweh, why would you forsake me? And in that moment, he endured the gravest suffering by any human being ever. But still, you know, we don't see these words coming out of Jesus' mouth, but this is what he's echoing by his life and definitely on the cross. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think this is what it means to pray your kingdom come. This is what it means to pray that the will of God would be done. I think this is the highest expression of faith that any of us can utter, that we would both submit to and accept the sovereignty of God, to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No matter if the answer is yes or no, Lord, God, I'm going to trust you. 
And those are hard words for all of us to pray. I think next week, well, I know because I already thought about it. Next week, we're going to look at the fourth petition. All right. So the first the first three petitions are, are vertical. They point toward God. They're, they're Godward. And this the next three petitions are all horizontal. It's, it's our uh, it's God, uh, Jesus allows us to come and bring our cares and concerns and needs to our Father. And in this fourth petition, we, we, we're told that we don't have to be shy to tell God our needs, that whatever it is that we think we need, not even a want, it's just like, if I think I need it, I have the, the privilege of coming to God and giving him those things. I don't have to be shy about it. And so there's, if there's something going on with your kids, I can fall at the feet of the Lord and say, Lord, I'm just pleading for my kids that you would bring my son back because he's a wayward, or that you heal my, my relative that has cancer, or that there's tension in my marriage. Would you come and would you reconcile me to my spouse? I mean, all those things we can rightfully come to God and cry out to him. God gives us that opportunity to do that in this fourth petition. And we should do all that. But here in this third petition, here's what is informing us. You know, first, we, we have the opportunity to trust God, to trust him, to, to give us the answer that is best for us. And as we bring God all the stuff of our lives, he has a plan, but he also has an agenda. And even though we might not understand that agenda, if we're willing to say, all right, God, I bring this to you. It, it's your name. It's your kingdom. It's your will. I think that's what Jesus is, is, is mimicking for us. That's what he's modeling for us. Here's my last thought. You know, all this would be really hard. I mean, just think about just like, oh, Lord, just, I, I want to be able to give you just all those things that are just that I really want and I think I need to happen in life. And it would be really scary to turn those over to the Lord, except for the fact that at the beginning of this prayer, he tells us that we can, we can call God Father. You see that? That's how Jesus begins the prayer. Father. But not just Father. Our Father. And of course, we've, we've, we've rehearsed these words. It's the Aramaic word Abba. Or it's like a little kid coming to their, their dad and saying, Papa. Daddy, Papa, to be willing to bend my will to God's plans would be horrible if God were a tyrant. But here's the thing. God proves himself in his revealed word that he's a good God, right? He's not just a good father. He's a good God, and he's a good king who, with all of his goodness, is going to rule and reign over your lives and he's going to give you not just what you want. He's going to give you what you need. And we might not think that's good for us, but ultimately it is because it was good for Jesus. I think these are good words to, to remind ourselves. Prayer is not about bending God's will to my plans, but bending my will to God's plans. What about you? I want us to close with a, a corporate prayer that we're going to read. It's written by John Wesley, and it's written from the, the perspective of, of your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. But uh, before we do, I want, us, I want to invite us, as we've done several times in this series, to about 30 seconds of prayer. Well, let's go 60 seconds, right? 60 seconds of prayer. Perhaps you've never prayed these words. Perhaps you've never prayed to God at all. 
what, a, what a, an appropriate time for you to practice bending your will to God instead of asking him to bend his will to you. And, and surely if you're not a Christian and you pray those words, Lord, you know, I've been, I, I, I've, I've tried to boss you around and um, perhaps you don't even know that God exists. And if you open your mouth and express faith in him, then he will reveal himself to you through the spirit in the gospel of Jesus and what he's done in his person and his death on the cross. And he will make himself known to you. But perhaps you're a Christian and you're struggling with this idea of will. Like you've got some real things going on and you need to know what you should do. Why not take a couple of seconds and offer up to God? Perhaps you're stuck. It's like, Lord, I'm, I'm, there's, I'm stuck and then there's a hard place. And I need to discern from your word, from your spirit, from the body of Christ, what I should do in this circumstance. Would you offer that up to the Lord? Let's take about 60 seconds. Let's read these words together as a closing prayer for us collectively today. Read with me. O Lord God, Holy Father, who has called us through Christ to be partakers of this gracious covenant, we take upon ourselves with joy the yoke of obedience and engage ourselves out of love for you to see and do your perfect will. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering, let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Maybe it was it's tough for you to, to read those words. And if so, just confess that to the Lord. And as we come to communion, um, remember Jesus who endured something way tougher than any of us will, will endure. And he brought that to the Lord. He fell on his knees and pleaded to his father, Lord, would you take this from me? And I don't know what it took in him to, to resolve differently, but somehow... In that same moment, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Lord, give us the, the same resolve that Jesus has.